0: If you have your Bibles, would you take them out and turn with me to the book of Philippians? Philippians chapter 2. Oh, what a blessing it is to be able to sing of our Savior. Beautiful Savior, Lord of the nations, Son of God and Son of Man. We've been looking at these truths in Philippians Chapter 2, and I want us to be reminded again of the context we have one last Sunday as we finish out the great parabola, as we finish out from Christ's preeminent glory to his condescension, all the way down to his utter humiliation, and then all the way back up to his exaltation. We are entering that last curve of the parabola, and this morning it is my prayer that Jesus would be magnified. I know that you love him, and I know that you long to love him more. And my prayer this morning is that you would see, that I would see, that we as Christ Bible Church would see Jesus Christ and his glory. And that we would be changed. We would not casually approach the Son of God and the Son of Man. We would not casually approach the Savior of mankind. That this morning we would come before our Lord and Master. And as we fall at His feet together, we would hear Him say, Friend, I no longer call you slave. I call you friend because I have told you everything that I am doing. So friend, find your satisfaction and hope in me. Philippians chapter 2 verse 1. Therefore, since there is encouragement in Christ... Since there is consolation of love, since there is fellowship in the spirit and since there is affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing, know nothing at all from selfishness or empty glory. But instead, with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. So we say, Paul, give me an example of what that looks like. How do we look to the interests of others above our own? You would say, Christ Bible Church, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, clutched onto, used for his own purposes, But instead, he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So, because of this, for this reason also, God, the Father, highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is the cry of Paul through the Holy Spirit, that every tongue would confess Jesus as Lord because of God the Father highly exalting His Son because of His Son's Amazing sacrifice. We've been in this passage, this is the third week that we've been studying this great parabola. And just by way of reminder, as we started in verse 5, looking at this parabola, looking at the example that Paul is setting forth to the church in Philippi and to our church as well, he is saying, this is what you must have in your own hearts, in your own minds. The attitude that Jesus had. Do not be selfish. Do not be prideful. Do not be vainly conceited. But instead... We must take our cue from the greatest example of humility and selfless service, Jesus Christ. We've looked so far at Christ's preeminence and Christ's condescension, and we're going to look this morning at Christ's exaltation. Christ's preeminence was seen in verse 6, and there's actually a very nice way to outline these three points on the parabola. Christ's preeminence has two main sections inside of it. Christ's condescension has two main sections and Christ's exaltation has two main elements as well. Christ's preeminence, we looked at it already. Paul described in verse six that two things. Number one, Jesus existed in the form of God, the morphe of God, everything that it means to be God. Jesus was he was God through and through. And secondly, he was equal with God. isos with God. Jesus was and is God very God. So, under his preeminence, we see that he was in the form of God and equal with God. And yet, he did not greedily clutch onto it with white knuckles, saying, I will not let anything go. Instead, verse 7 teaches us of the condescension of Christ, and there are two. Elements in the condescension of Christ. Number one, his emptying, his self emptying. And number two, his humiliation, being humbled in verse eight. We look last week at the condescension of Jesus that he emptied himself. We spent a while discussing the self emptying of Jesus Christ, that word where we get kenosis from. And as we discussed it, I just wanted to clarify to make sure that we understood exactly what it means that he emptied himself. Jesus did not empty himself of deity, not one ounce, not one percentage point, not one aspect of his deity was emptied. He was always 100% God and not one ounce of humanity was emptied. He was always 100% man when he condescended and came to this earth. So what did he empty himself of? Of what was his self emptying? We discussed very clearly, hopefully, that it was not any of his divine attributes, but it was the independent exercise of his divine attributes. So, was Jesus 100% omniscient when he was on the earth? Absolutely. But did he use that omniscience on his own? No. Whenever he did use it, and by the way, we do see Jesus using omniscience in the Gospels. Uh, We talked last week about the areas where he doesn't use omniscience, where he is Um, taking upon himself the limitations of fallen humanity. What were some of the examples that we gave where Jesus truly did not know a couple things? Time of his return. He said, no one knows the day or the hour. No one, not even the son of man, not even Jesus knows. What else? Remember, he didn't know where Lazarus was buried. I'm going to perform a miracle. I'm going to raise a man from the dead. But first, I need to know where he is buried. Another great example of his humanity and his deity colliding at the exact same moment, and it is a mystery, and we need to keep the tension on this mystery, is in the early chapters of Mark when he is asleep in the boat during the midst of a hurricane. He's asleep. He's not faking being asleep. He is out cold because he is human and he is exhausted. But at the same time, when he is uh, awoken, he rises up and calms the sea instantly. God very God, man very man. So, Jesus never emptied himself of his divine attributes. That must be understood. He never emptied himself of his divine attributes. If he did, he would cease to be God, 100% God through and through. He emptied himself of the independent exercise of his divine attributes, independently doing it on his own volition. We discussed briefly last week, and I wanted to bring clarity to this as well, The hymn that we just sang two two hymns ago, uh, And Can It Be? There were a couple questions that were raised out of that, and I appreciate the questions, and I wanted to clarify. Um, I was actually looking through other hymnals this week to look at the way that the... What was the line that we kind of take issue with? Emptied himself of all but love. Now, uh, Charles Wesley's writing that in the 18th century. Uh, In the 19th century... There is a group of people that come out, and it's very confusing, and this is why I didn't go to this last week, but there's a there's a very confusing group that believe in what's called the kenosis formula or the kenotic formula, and we'd go, well, we believe that too. And We don't, really, and that's why it's confusing. We believe in the kenosis and the self-emptying, but they have this, there's a doctrine that they held to called the kenosis formula, the kenotic formula. And what they claimed is Jesus emptied himself of his divine attributes. He poured out everything that was truly divine in himself and became 100% man. He was less than God. He was fully man. And Charles Wesley is writing in the 18th century. They are preaching this doctrine in the 19th century. And they decided, you know what, we really like that line. Emptied himself of all but love. And they kind of took that to their own cause and waved it as their banner see Charles Wesley got it right he emptied himself of all but love again I have no issue with Charles Wesley I have issue with the people that came and said that means Charles Wesley is meaning it's the way you interpret his line he's meaning that Jesus emptied everything divine attributes of himself which we would say no that's heresy because Jesus has to be 100% God So there are hymn writers, just to be careful, or not hymn writers, Charles Wesley is the hymn writer. There are hymn adapters that actually change that Um, in very, very reformed and careful churches. You will see, emptied himself in all his love. Just to make sure to clarify, he didn't empty himself of everything that it meant to be God except for love. So I wanted to clarify that. If you have any question as to whether or not I love that song, I think that's probably the most sung song at Christ Bible Church. I love Anne Canobie, and I'm totally fine with that line because I think it has to do with your interpretation of it. If Charles Wesley was here in the pulpit, I think you would say, oh, you guys are absolutely right. He emptied himself of all of his independent exercise of his divine attributes, but he never emptied himself of God. So that's my hope at least. Hopefully that clarifies a little bit, but I wanted to make sure that we clarified his condescension, because if we get his condescension wrong, we will equally miss the glory of his exaltation. Jesus emptied himself of the independent exercise of his divine attributes. He never emptied himself of his divine attributes. He became a man. He emptied himself, Paul would literally say, by taking. He poured himself out by taking to himself the form of a slave, the form of man being a man, and humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Christ's preeminent glory in the form of God, equal with God, Christ's condescension, emptying himself and humbling himself. And now we get to verse 9 through 11, one sentence in the original. And here we see the exaltation of Jesus Christ in our two main verbs again two points that fall under the exaltation of jesus christ and it is what god the father does with his son number one he highly exalts him and number two he bestows on him the name which is above every name it's a nice little outline thank you paul and thank you holy spirit for giving us a a happy little outline verses 9 through 11 point to a dramatic shift in this parabola, you notice there has been a progression thus far. Jesus, being fully God, emptied himself of the independent use of his divine attributes, took the form of a bondservant, a slave, step number one, down. Then he is made in the likeness of men, step number two, down. He's in the appearance as a man, step number three. He humbles himself by becoming obedient, step number four, and he is humbled to the point of death, number five even death on a cross, number six. It's a constant staircase down, a step, a progression down. But what I love about verses 9 through 11 is there is no progression anymore. Jesus does not uh, is not lifted up by the Father. Step one, step two, step three, step four, in one fell swoop, God the Father reaches down and exalts His Son in one action. Described for us in two words in my Bible, highly exalted, It's one word in the Greek. Jesus is highly exalted by the Father. No more progression any longer. And so in these verses, we're going to just split it up into two main elements of the exaltation of Jesus Christ. We're going to see, number one, the response of the Father. And number two, the reason for this response. We're going to see, number one, the response of the Father in verse 9. And number two, we're going to see the reason for this response in verses 10 through 11. So, verse 9, let's begin with the response. The response of the father to what? The response of the father to the obedience of his son, to the humiliation of the son. My Bible starts in verse 9 by saying, for this reason could be translated as this is why or because of this. And very technically, it could mean, Because of what happened and looking forward to what is going to come in the verses. Because of what I'm about to do, I am going to exalt Jesus. And because of what Jesus did, I'm going to exalt him. Either way, we're going to have the reason for his exaltation in verse 10 by the words, So that... So verse 9 is probably looking backwards. The father saying, Because of this, because of my son's supreme example of humiliation because of my Son willingly becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, because of that, I will highly exalt Him. I will highly exalt Him. Turn back to Matthew chapter 23. We discussed this in passing a couple weeks ago, but in Matthew 23, we see a formula This is a familiar formula. It's actually in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We can find it in all of the Gospels. But in Matthew chapter 23, verse 12, Jesus is speaking to the crowds and he's speaking about the Pharisees and their example of self-righteous hypocrisy. And at the end, if you go all the way down to verse 12, at the end of his little speech, and his teaching on how not to act, he says this, whoever exalts himself, this is Jesus speaking, whoever exalts himself shall be what? Humbled. And whoever humbles himself shall be what? So if you do the humbling, if you humble yourself, if you do the humbling actively on your own, if you humble yourself then someone else will exalt you. You don't need to worry about exalting yourself. Somebody else will exalt you. You can see that in the active and passive way that these verbs are being used. If you exalt yourself, you will be humbled. But if you humble yourself, you will be exalted. This is exactly the same formula that we see in Philippians chapter 2. Thus far in these verses, all Paul has been speaking about has been the actions, the active actions of Jesus Christ. He did this. He did that. He emptied himself. He humbled himself. He became obedient. And at the end of his obedience, the father steps in and says, now I will fulfill the rest of that formula. You humbled yourself and now I will exalt you. I will exalt you. Now God the father is the main actor. He exalts the son He bestows on the son the name that is above every name. The father steps in and responds to the obedience and the humiliation of his son. Now, there are two main reasons why or specifically um, how the father responds to the humiliation of his son. There are two main ways that the father responds as he sees his son utterly humiliated as he sees his son becoming a curse for us. Number one, the first main verb that we come across in verse nine, the father highly exalts his son. That's the first main response. The father highly exalts his son. Instead of a progression, instead of slowly lifting him up, I kind of think of a a ski lift, just slowly but surely getting there. The kid sitting next to you says, are we there yet? And hey, be patient, son. We're almost there. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? No. In one fell swoop, the father reaches down and exalts his son, highly exalts his son. The word, therefore, exalted is the normal word in the Greek for exalted. But Paul sticks a word at the at the beginning of that word for exalted and kind of makes this uh, morphed word. He puts the word hyper at the beginning Uh, the Greek word hyper. And we obviously get our word hyper from that word. He hyper-exalted the Son. He didn't just exalt Him. He hyper-exalted Him. He lifted Him above any other creature, above any other creation, above anything in the universe, above every single thing that has ever been created. He exalts His Son, the uncreated One, above every single element of creation. He exalts Him highly. He exalts Him. A second response, a second aspect of His response of the Father's response to the Son's obedience and humiliation, is the second main verb that we come across in verse 9. The Father bestows on Jesus. The Father bestows on Jesus a name which is above every name. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 29, Paul actually uses this exact same word in verse 29 of chapter 1. For to you it has been granted, gifted, graciously offered. It's the same word for bestowed that we come across in verse 9 of chapter 2. Jesus doesn't have to grab his own exaltation. He doesn't have to grab his own name above all names. He is graciously given that by the Father because of what he has done in his own self-humiliation and self-humbling to the point of obedience to death, even death on a cross. The Father highly exalts the Son and then gives him, gifts him the name which is above every name. I think Ephesians chapter 1, we would do well to see that. Go to Ephesians, just one book earlier, one letter earlier. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18. Paul says this, and I, I really believe this is the prayer that Paul would have for us this morning as well. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of Jesus' calling upon your life, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So he brings this about in Christ when the Father stoops down Raises him from the dead. Seats him at his right hand in the heavenly places. That is highly exalting him. And now Jesus is far above. Verse 21. All rule and all authority and all power and all dominion. And every name that is named. Not only in this age but also in the the one to come. And the Father has put all things in subjection under the Son's feet. And gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. That is the highly exalting and the bestowing of the name above every name. What is this name that is above every name? A lot of people think instinctively it's Jesus. So that at the name of, of Jesus, verse 10, so it must be the name which is above every name is the name of Jesus. So a lot of people just jump to Jesus. Jesus is a great name. But I want to give you two reasons. There are many reasons why. But I want to give you two reasons why Jesus is not the name above every name. Number one, Jesus was Christ's distinctively earthly name. If we had time, we'd go to Matthew chapter 1, see the angel Gabriel telling Mary, You shall call his name Jesus because he will what? Save his people from their sins. Call his name Jesus. That's his earthly name. That's his distinctively earthly name. And the very interesting thing to note is that once Jesus is raised from the dead and is ascended to the Father, all of the gospel writers at the very, very end and then all of the apostles in their letters, they rarely use the name Jesus anymore. If we, if we do find the name Jesus, it is usually coupled with the name that is above every name, which is Lord Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. But usually, frequently, it's just the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. And if Jesus, if the name of Jesus does show up in the epistles and in letters from the apostles, it's usually attached to the Lord. It drops off dramatically. We see the name of Jesus through and through the gospel records. But when Jesus is highly exalted to the right hand of the Father, that name, that earthly name, starts to fade away, and the name of Lord, the name that is above every name, starts to be prominently displayed in the letters of the apostles. That's reason number one, that Jesus is not the name above every name. It's because it was his earthly name. It was distinctively his earthly name. And in fact, there are many places in the Gospel records when the Pharisees look to Jesus and they call him, You are not the Son of God. You are Jesus, and it's a maligning, demeaning name because that's just an earthly name. It's just Patrick. That's just the label that you have over it. How can you be the Son of God when you are just a human? So that's reason number one. Reason number two is very clearly the grammar of this passage does not lend itself to Jesus being the name above all names. In verse 9, Paul says, That God the Father bestows on Jesus the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus. A lot of times we just read instinctively so that at the name Jesus, every name will bow and every tongue will confess. But grammatically, it's not at the name colon Jesus or at the name Jesus, every name will bow. It is literally at the name which belongs to Jesus. So it's another name. It's not Jesus. It's not his name. It's another name. At the name which belongs to Jesus. So the question is, what name belongs to Jesus? I think we see it in verse 11. Jesus Christ is Lord. That is the name that belongs to Jesus. The name that is above every name. It is a title of master, of sovereign, of ruler, of commander. Commander. And it is the only name that could be given to the son of God and the son of man to say he is Lord of everything. There is nothing that is above him. There is no one that tells him what to do. Oh, yes, that used to happen when he was on the earth, but no longer. No more will somebody tell him to stretch out his arms and nail him to a cross. Now he will tell them to bow their knee to him. This is the name that you and I cry out, Master. Lord, sovereign ruler, we are your humble slaves. We are lowly. Use us as you will. That is the name that is given to Jesus, the name that is above every name, and it is a name that demands a response. The father responds to the humiliation of his son, to the obedience of his son, by highly exalting him and by bestowing on him the name It is above every name. And why does the father do this? Number two, I want us to see not only the response of the father, but the reason for the response. Why does the father respond in this way? Why does the father respond by highly exalting the son and by bestowing on him the name which is above every name, the name of Lord? Why does he do that? Well, I think Paul gives us the reasons. Reason number one in verse 10, so that at the name of Jesus, at the name that has been given to him, the name of Lord, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be and who the father says he is. Lord, very Lord, God, very God, ruler of all. The Pharisees said, you are just an illegitimate child. You are just an illegitimate son. There's no way you can be the son of God. And the father says, no, that is God through and through. He is Lord over all. He is Lord over all. Paul uses in verse 10, maybe your Bibles have every knee will bow in all capital letters. That means it's a quotation from the old Testament. And if you turn to Isaiah chapter 45, I want us to see this quotation in its context. Isaiah chapter 45 is where Paul is quoting from. It's a partial quotation from verse 23, but we need to start in verse 22 to see the context. Actually, middle of 21. There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a savior. There is none except for me. This is God speaking to Israel and he's speaking actually to King Cyrus and He's telling everyone who hears, I am God. Kings may come, kings may go. I am God and there is no other. There is no one like me. Verse 22. So the response is this. Turn to me, repent, turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself. The word has gone forth from my mouth and righteousness and will not turn back. That to me, every knee will bow Every tongue will swear allegiance. Paul is quoting from this section of Scripture. This is the Father speaking. This is Yahweh speaking, saying, Every knee will bow. What a perfect passage to share with any of our friends who do not think that Jesus ever claims to be God, or that Jesus is God through and through, or that the Bible describes Jesus being God, very God. Here is the Father speaking. And as the Father speaks and says, every knee will bow to me, the Father also speaks in Philippians chapter 2 and says, every knee will bow to my Son, who is God, very God, who is God through and through, who is Lord. By the way, just a side note, Paul loves that verse in Isaiah 45. You can write down Romans 14, 11. He quotes the verse there. He quotes it in three other places in Scripture, but they're kind of... Uh, spliced up and not full quotes, so we actually don't even see it in all caps in our Bibles as quotations. But he loves these verses. He loves these verses that describe the final day when all of human history is over and every knee bows and every tongue confesses that God is truly who he claims to be. And I wonder if it's any strange coincidence That the Apostle Paul who loved that verse and lived in light of that final day was the most amazing evangelist that this world has probably ever known. Knowing there is a day coming when I no longer can share my faith, when I no longer can plead with people to come and bow the knee now before God forces them to bow the knee and then sends them into an eternity separated from Him. In the future, God intends that everyone in the universe will stand before Jesus, the Son, and give a physical and verbal recognition that he alone is Lord. Turn to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. This shows up in a very interesting place in the Gospel of John. And if we're reading straight through, I don't think we would see the full weight of what Jesus is about to say. Jesus heals a paralytic man and he heals on the Sabbath. And that is going to send the Pharisees into a downward spiral of saying, how could you do that? Who are you claiming to be, God? And Jesus says, yes, you got it. And in verse 19 of John chapter 5, Jesus answered and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. A great example of the kenosis. I can't do it on my own. Intrinsically, Jesus could, but because he takes upon the limitations of fallen humanity, he cannot, he will not do it on his own volition. He waits until the Father does it through him through the Spirit. Whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in a like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing, and the Father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to whom? The Son. So that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. What an amazing verse. In verse 22, Not even the father judges anyone. It's the son he has given. He has gifted. He has graciously given to the son. The father has given to the son the judgment of all. That's exactly what Paul is describing here. Once Jesus was murdered on a cross and buried in a tomb, God the Father highly exalted him by raising him from the dead. And by the way, the scriptures teach us that God the Father raised Jesus, that the Holy Spirit raised Jesus, and that Jesus raised himself. You remember Jesus said... Uh, You tear this temple down, and in three days I will rebuild it. So all three persons of the Trinity were actively involved in this process of raising him from the dead. And then the Father exalts him as he ascends him back to the right hand of the Father. And he says, you will judge everyone. You are Lord. You will judge everyone. That's what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And then he describes for us three categories of people. Those who are in heaven, more than likely angelic beings, but also saints, those on earth, all of us, and those under the earth, more than likely demons, more than likely fallen angels. But the bottom line is there is no place in the entire universe where there are not people in heaven, on earth and under the earth. So Paul is just saying categorically, Jesus is the judge of all, Lord of all, and every single creature will fall on their knees and declare in verse 11 with their tongues, with their mouths, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Reason number one for why the Father exalts the Son is so that the Son would have first place, as Colossians says, in everything. Lord of all. Reason number two why the Father highly exalts and bestows on his son the name that is above every name is found at the end of verse 11. That every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Reason number two, to the glory of God the Father. To the glory of God the Father. This is where the entirety of human history ends. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 20. Paul writes, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. He's not dead yet or still. He has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who are asleep, he has been raised so that all of us who believe in him can be raised also. Because, verse 21, since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. After that, those who are are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end. When he hands over, when Jesus hands over the kingdom to the God and Father. When he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. Because he must reign. He has to reign until he put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death, and then death will be no more. And Jesus, once he has final and total authority and the confession from every single created being that you are who you say you are, you are Lord, you are God, Jesus will then hand over the kingdom to the Father and say, you graciously exalted me, and my job is to point to you. My job is to point and exalt and show off The Father. No one has seen the Father, but whoever sees the Son has seen the Father. Jesus is the exact representation of the Father, Hebrews chapter 1. That's what Jesus loves to do, show us the Father. You remember Thomas, at the very end of Jesus' life, Thomas says, can we see the Father already? We've been hearing all this talk about the Father. Can we see the Father already? And Jesus says, Thomas, you still don't get it. I'm only days away from dying, and you still don't get it. No one can see the Father, but if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am the exact representation of the Father's glory. It is his pleasure, it is the Son's pleasure to point us back to the Father's glory. So Paul says that the Father exalts the Son, and he exalts the Son for the purpose, reason number one, of having every single creature in the entire universe proclaim he is Lord. And then reason number two, he does this so that the Father would be glorified, to the glory of the Father. Or as we heard today in our family Bible hours, solely Deo Gloria. To God alone belong the glory. So, how do we sum up the entirety of what we've been learning through this great parabola? Just two points by way of conclusion. Number one, This is the prophesied end of all of humanity. This is the prophesied end of all of humanity. The question is not if you will bow or if you will confess. That's a given. Every single human, every single creature, every single created being will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord. That's not the question. The question to our hearts today is when will that take place for you? Will you bow the knee now or will you be forced to bow the knee on the last day? If you have bowed your knee to Jesus Christ as Lord and follow him as master, maybe the question would be what areas of your life have you taken back and owned as Lord? You say, okay, you can have this 90% of my life, but I want this 10% back. Are there areas in your life where Christ's lordship is struggling or waning. Please do not let that make you be afraid or cause doubt in your heart as to whether you are saved. It is not by your works of submitting to Jesus that you are saved. It is by Christ's gracious gift of faith to you to believe and to repent that you are saved. And I believe this is why Paul is going to turn... Based on everything that he's been talking about, he will turn in the next verse that we'll study next week two, so what? So then you keep working out your salvation. Don't be afraid, oh, maybe I'm not saved. Work out what you already have. Don't work for your salvation. Work out your salvation. But let this question be a question that hangs over our hearts and our heads. Have we submitted every aspect of our lives to Jesus as Lord for the areas where we struggle, may we praise the Lord for His grace. I just think too many times as we stare inwardly, and rightly so, as we examine our hearts and examine our righteousness or lack thereof, I just I have the suspicion, the sneaking suspicion, that more often than not, we see our failures much louder, much brighter, much stronger than the grace of God. And maybe, just maybe, you're here this morning and you are thinking, oh, if I get to heaven right now, if I died right now, I haven't conquered certain sins. I haven't finished fighting the fight of sin. I'm still struggling with the same old things. And to you not only is it a struggle for you to see entry into heaven in the very first point, maybe you're struggling with, am I even saved? But secondly, you think that your Father in heaven is standing there waiting to see you with His arms crossed, with a furrowed brow, looking down upon you. How could you not figure that out? How could you not get that? Tisk tisk. How ashamed I am that you are my son or you are my daughter. Can I please rebelliously and defiantly say that is not the picture of our Father presented to us in the Scriptures. On that last day, we will enter into heaven, and yes, there will be sins that we still struggle with. Maybe every Communion Sunday, we're still asking forgiveness for the exact same thing, but on that last day, as we enter into heaven, those sins will finally cease. Those sins will finally be burned away in their entirety, and the Father will not stand with any amount of displeasure over you. He will see the righteousness of his son, and therefore all he will say in a smile and with joy is, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Well done. As we look inwardly and we go, how could he possibly say that? He's going to look at me and, and have such anger in his heart and such frustration that I never figured it out. He is never going to do that. He's going to look at us and say, Well done. Because we trusted in the righteousness of another. We did not trust in our own righteousness. So have you bowed the knee to that Savior? How could we not, when we've seen what Jesus has done for us in these verses, how could we not bow the knee to somebody who would willingly take our penalty, take our punishment, bear the wrath of the Father on our behalf? How could we not? I think if Paul were here, he would say, bow the knee now to a Savior who is so gracious and loving and desires that none would perish. Bow the knee now. But a second point of application for our own hearts as we conclude is this. We must stop. We must pause. We must stare and we must see and savor this Jesus no longer meek and mild, no longer lowly, no longer humiliated. This exalted Savior that is our Lord, our Master, and He calls us friend. We must behold that Jesus. Because in beholding that Jesus, we will be transformed. And what I want us to do with the time that we have remaining is behold Jesus. Behold our Savior. And respond in a way that I believe would be appropriate. Considering the last day and considering this day. Revelation chapter 1, verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood and he has made us to be a kingdom priest to his God and father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. The Almighty. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom of and perseverance, which are in Jesus, was on the isle called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit. On the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice, like the sound of a trumpet, saying, Write in a book what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one. Like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Turn to chapter 5. Verse six, I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders, a lamb standing as if slain, as if slaughtered, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp. And golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in the heavens and the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all the things in them I heard saying to him. Who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen, amen, amen. Truly let it be. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Turn to chapter 19, verse 11. I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many crowns. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him, On white horses from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, Jesus has a name written, given to him from the Father, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Father, we thank You for this amazing picture of Your Son, who He is now waiting in Heaven for the day that You say, Go. For the day that You call all of us who know You to be home with You forever. Father, I pray that You would be pleased even now as we consider Jesus the Lord, the glorious Lord, the name above all names, our beautiful Savior. And may beholding His glory change us from the inside out.